This is the second message in a series that I've called Fail. And the tagline is, disappointed with yourself, cheer up, you're in good company. The idea behind the whole series, and we managed to spell it right on the cover of the bulletin this week, but the idea behind the whole series is that you and I are not all right. Now, of course, we, we know this to be true, but we pretend that it's not true, or more correctly, we let others believe that it's not true. We paint smiles on our faces, and when people ask how we're doing, whether they're just acquaintances or close friends, we say, oh, fine, I, I couldn't be better. And of course, that's the expected answer in our culture, but the truth is, we're not really fine, not in anything but a superficial sense. The truth is more likely that we are each struggling. We want to be better than we are. We want to be more devoted than we are. We want to be more content than we are, more productive than we are. We want to be less selfish, less lustful, and generally less sinful than we are. We want to be better parents and better husbands and wives than we actually are. This past week, one person told me that some days the only thing that they can look back on and count as a victory is the fact that they did not give in to their anger and frustration and physically lash out at a family member, one that family member they dearly love, but who is nonetheless frustrating them to no end. Have you, have you ever been there with your, with your children or, or even with your parents? You, you get so angry, so frustrated, and you're at your wit's end, and you know, the fight or flight instinct in you is definitely set into fight mode, and you want to you hit somebody, but you don't, barely. And afterwards, you think to yourself, what's wrong with me? How could I even think about doing something like that? Well, the premise of this whole series of messages is that we are not a-okay, and we're not doing ourselves or the church or the kingdom of God any favors by continuing to insist on this fiction that we are a-okay, you know? And I want to review uh, the, the two quotations I ended with last Sunday. So, yeah, there you go. And the first one is uh, Eugene O'Neill, and one of his character in one of his plays said, Man is born broken. He lives by mending, the grace of God is the glue. And I just think that's, that's an awesome quotation. It's going to be the theme for this whole series. And the companion quote is from the late comedian George Carlin, uh, who expressed much the same idea, just in a little more uh, earthy way. He said, just because you got the monkey off your back doesn't mean the circus has left town. Uh, you know, the truth is that we are not all right, and we will not be all right this side of heaven. But the corollary is that that is not the end of the world because Jesus has our backs. Now, I used to believe that, be, that being a Christian, becoming more like Jesus was a, was a, was a linear proposition, you know, that I'll be a, a better Christian today than I was yesterday and I'll be an even better Christian the day after that. And, and then at a, you know, at a certain age, if I keep getting better each and every day, each and every week, each and every month, at a certain age, it's going to be like sin is almost completely out of the picture. But these days I grow more and more convinced all the time that everybody's got something. Every single person has something in their lives that, that drags them down. 
Whether it's a, a thought pattern you can't shake that has to do with, with lust or envy or, or general negativity or, or something you did that you can't forgive yourself for. You keep going back to, why did I do that? And, why, and something maybe it's 20, 30 years ago, 40, 50 years ago, or last week, and you're just going, oh, this is still eating at you all the time. Or maybe it's a lingering rebelliousness. You just always have to have your own way. Or pride. Or something about yourself that makes you think, you know, if people knew about this, then it would just be over. That would be it. Everybody has something. See, everybody's got something. Of that, I'm sure. And like I said last Sunday, when people come into to a church, whether it's this congregation or pretty much any other one, and if this is something that's, that's new for them, uh, they're very often under the impression that, that we have it all together. They, they assume that we don't wrestle with, with thinking lustful, angry, or selfish thoughts. They think we are never tempted to, to swear or, or screen out the calls of our needy friends, you know. Uh, it's quite possible that many of them think that church people never get seriously discouraged, that we never feel that we're at the end of our rope, or that we, we never contemplate running away to live on a beach in Mexico or Tahiti or someplace like that. However, we know better we know that we do struggle with these things and more. I found a great little bit of writing on a blog by a woman who simply goes by her first name, Nicole, and I don't know anything about her. She's a believer, but she put up this little article just last week called 10 Facebook Statuses You'll Probably Never Read and What It Means, If Anything. And I'm not going to read you the whole list, but she hits the nail right on the head with most of these. Number one, she says, this uh, Facebook status you'll probably never see. Look, I gained 20 pounds. Nobody's going to put that up on Facebook. We share when we've lost weight, but this is the equivalent of that picture you see with the obese man wearing a t-shirt that says, I beat anorexia. You know, you've seen that. Uh, Number two, my husband forgot our anniversary. I don't even know why we're still married. Again, nobody does this. Instead, I read all these, oh, I love my husband and my wife so much, kind of statuses on Facebook. And he gets a little bit syrupy sometimes, but you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But the truth is, the reality is that many marriages, most marriages probably, are really not just as solid as, um, as people portray them to be on Facebook or anytime they're out in public together. Because how many times you see a couple and they're so affectionate and they're, you know, they're always holding hands or he's got his arm around her or something like that and then you find out that you know, they're splitting up or something like that's going on. We, we put on airs. We, we, we fake it lots of times. Her number five on her list was, I didn't get the promotion I wanted and my boss says I stink. No one wants to be told they don't measure up. And sometimes we do measure up and we still get passed over. But haven't most of us been there at one point or another? We know we are more than our career, more than our job, but this is still not something we're going to share with everybody. Number seven, my, the dog has fleas, the kids have lice, and the house has bed bugs. Hashtag party at our house. <laughs> now, <clears throat> we all know that our clean angels of children can get lice from their filthy little friends. But we're not going to advertise this, even when it's not our fault. And these are pretty good, but it was number eight on our list that fits so well with what I want to address this morning. Number eight was, I prayed and God didn't answer. I worshiped and felt lonelier. I read the Bible, nothing. Nicole writes, how easily we equate a positive attitude with being a good Christian. Failing to live in victory, bad Christian. Are you complaining? 40 years in a desert for you. Haven't heard from God? You must have an unrepentant heart. She says, I too am tempted to think that if I'm struggling, I must be doing something wrong. But what if I'm struggling simply because I live in a fallen world? 
What if there is no explanation? Sometimes life is just painful and confusing. Isn't there often this subtle stigma in the church when it comes to struggling, whether you know, it be emotionally, mentally, or even spiritually? And I'm, I'm talking about everything from you know, going through a dry spell where you just don't feel close to God for a time, all the way up to recurring, oftentimes crippling depression, something that more than a few people suffer from. There's a, I'm going to read a great story from the life of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. And it's a story that many of you will have heard before, but it's possible you've never heard it as a, presented as a sort of a, of a case study of when a godly person, a person who wants to do right by God, who, who, whose life is dedicated to serving God, it's really a, a case study of when a good, godly person gets to the end of his rope. And it's in 1 Kings chapter 19, and I think it might be useful for us to take a look at it. So uh, we're going to go through that, and uh, Ruth's got some, there we go. Uh, 1 Kings 19 verse 1. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Elijah sent this message to, so Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me, if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, where he left his servant, and he left his servant there. Then he went to, alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Now I want to stop there for a second, since we're sort of joining the story halfway through. Elijah was a prophet to the country of Israel during what's called the divided kingdom. After the kings of Saul, David, and Solomon, there was a civil war, and the country of Israel split with the northern half going by the name Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah because it was dominated by the tribe of Judah. The Ahab referenced here was the king of Israel, but he was one of the very worst ones in, in, a, in a group that wasn't a stellar uh, 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 representation of godly men. Uh, Ahab had married a, a foreign woman, uh, the daughter of another king of uh, a non-God-fearing uh, uh, country, a woman named Jezebel. And under their leadership, Israel was going to hell in a handbasket. They had given up all pretense of worshiping God, the real God, and had pretty much all signed on to join the new unofficial state religion of Baal worship. The Bible even says that Ahab had done more to upset God than all the other kings before him. I think it implies combined. So after some time of strife between Ahab and, and Elijah, because Elijah was God's man, he was a prophet, he was doing God's bidding, Elijah challenges Ahab and his Baal cult to, to a show-off, a, a showdown, show-off, a showdown. And if, if you go and you read chapter 18, say this afternoon, there's a great story uh, of how Elijah stood against 450 prophets of this false god Baal. And it was one of my favorite Old Testament stories when I was a kid. Fire comes down from heaven, awesome stuff happens. And the summary is, Elijah wins for God and, and Elijah wins big. And not only does he defeat the prophets at the game of, you know, my God is, is better than your God, but he wins the crowd back over to the real God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Elijah doesn't get to spend much time savoring his victory because, as the Bible tells us, when Ahab goes home and he tells the missus, 
She was just a gentle creature, this Jezebel. Tells her what happened. She gets a message to Elijah, and she says, you better run, buddy, because I'm coming for you, and I'm after your blood. And Elijah, who had just performed something amazing that was not his very first miracle, he's seriously scared, and, and he runs. He gets the heck out of Dodge. And he left his assistant, the last town there, down in Judah, and he went out into the desert. And he got way out in the desert, and he sat down under this scrubby tree and he said, you know, I think I'd rather die than go through any more of this. I, I just can't take it anymore, God. I, I think at this point I'd just as soon be like my parents and grandparents, dead. I knew a man in New Mexico when we lived down there. He was a deacon in our church and he's gone now, gone to his reward. But he was one of the, the nicest men I ever knew. I didn't really realize at the time but he was a follower of Jesus, and he was overwhelmingly positive. And, and he never said a, a gratuitously negative word about anyone. If he had something negative to say, it was never mean. It was always based in fact. Most of the time, he would find the bright side, and, and, and he really believed it. Johnny always found something nice to say in almost any situation. But one time, he, he told me about how uh, some years before, and he was in his early 70s at this time, and some years before, he'd had a, some disc problems in his back, and his, he had a rupture, and, and he was in a lot of pain, and he, he eventually had surgery and, and got to feeling better. But he was in a serious amount of pain. He said, he said it was the kind of pain where he was crawling on the floor from his, his bed to the bathroom. He, he couldn't get up and, and walk at all. And he looked at me, and he said, you know, I didn't really seriously consider killing myself. But the pain was so intense that I could understand why some people would consider it. Now, Elijah wasn't ready to kill himself here. But it looks like he wasn't going to argue with God if God wanted to do the deed. He was at the end of his rope. He was, he was done. He'd been fighting Ahab and Jezebel for years as God's man and God's name. And he'd won, and yet he was still on a run, fearing for his life. And, you know, it was game over. And likely some of you have been there, maybe more than once. Well, let's look at verse 5. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. <clears throat> so he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. You know, much of the time we start feeling overwhelmed and tired from an especially difficult time, we like to go on a vacation, right? Uh, it's pretty amazing how you can really be feeling like you just can't go another day doing what you're doing. But after a week or two away from it, or maybe even sometimes it's just a long weekend away, you know, you take an extra day or Monday's a holiday or something like that, and you realize it really wasn't as bad as what you thought it had been. And you say, I, well, I guess I can work here without having a nervous breakdown. Or you say, maybe I really do love my kids. You know, I was beginning to doubt it there for a while because they were driving me nuts. But I got away, and now I feel better, and I'm ready to be a mom or a dad again. But this was no vacation for Elijah. He was still in flight mode. But notice one thing here. 
There's no suggestion from God that Elijah is doing anything wrong. God sends an angel to, to tell him after he's rested a bit to eat something. And then, and then he tells him to eat, to eat some more. And I got to think, well, maybe my grandma was on the right track because she was always worried about us eating all the time. Oh, eat something. That was always her answer. You're here, eat something. Grandma, just ate. eat again, you know. Well, Elijah's on the road for 40 days and 40 nights, and that's a long time to be walking there. But 40 was a symbolic number uh, to the Hebrews. If you remember the number of years the Israelites were in the wilderness with Moses, wandering around, it was 40 years, right? And how long Jesus spent not eating in the desert before he was tempted by the devil? 40 days. So when he gets where he's going, the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, or Horeb, as some of your translations will say, uh, he finds a cave, he spends a night there. So let's pick it up with the second half of verse 9. The Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his cloak, wrapped his face in his cloak, and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And the voice said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken your covenant with you, their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Now, I don't want to ruin this very famous and much beloved passage with, with too much explanation, so let me just make one observation before we finish this story. Did you notice how Elijah was focused solely upon himself? It, it wasn't that he was being selfish here, you know, but he was viewing his own efforts as the, the only way the problem was going to get solved. He says, I tr I've tried to do the right thing, God, but the people of Israel are such losers, you know. It, it's, it's just me now. And with your help, I, I, I faced down 450 prophets, but even after a victory like that, I'm in a worse predicament now. I'm, I'm on the run in a foreign country, uh, you know, w waiting to, to die here. Now, I've seen it in myself and others. When we buy into this false image that we project, this false image of ourselves of being stronger than we are, that makes it easier to think that everything's going to go to pot because, you know, we can't believe our own PR for very long without realizing that, you know, we're not smart enough. We're not talented enough. We're, 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 we don't have enough energy to do everything that needs to be done, much less everything we would like to do. And Elijah thinking it was, it was all on him. And he'd given his best, and his best wasn't good enough. It's no wonder he was discouraged. He's like, oh, I, I've done everything you've told me to, God, but and look, this is still, the situation we're in is not good. See, and even after God tried to show him 
that God doesn't always do things in the expected way. I really think that's what the, the bit about God not being present in this spectacular wind and the earthquake and then the fire was about. But God was there in a whisper. You know, it was like, boom, here's all this great flashy stuff. And here's God silent in there in this little whisper. And Elijah still didn't get the point. He says, I've been trying to do right by you, God, but the people of Israel, they're, they're just losers. They've turned against you. All right, let's finish the story. Verse 15. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram, then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazael will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape from Jehu will be killed by Elisha. And yet I will reserve 7, preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. It's interesting to me what God does here. One source I read pointed out that God gave Elijah a new mission. He repurposed, repurposed him, if you will. And that's true, but he also showed him that he wasn't nearly alone as he thought he was. He says, you've got two kings and another prophet on your team here, as well as 7,000 people in Israel who've never flirted, even flirted with joining Team Baal. And there's one more thing God did in response to Elijah's burnout. He had Elijah appoint his successor, Elisha. So God was telling him, you know, when it's time for you to stand down, this Elisha, Elisha fellow is going to carry on the fight. Don't worry. Your, 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 your time is winding down. You're spent here. But don't worry. Things are still going to happen. Things are going to get done. I'm still working. <clears throat> now, there are several lessons that we could legitimately take home. It could be good takeaways from this great story. We could talk about Elijah's missteps and how when you're depressed and, and feeling overwhelmed, really the last thing you should do is, is isolate yourself. We could talk about God uh, being the, the still small voice and how lots of times I think we likely miss him because we want things to be bold and miracly or at least obvious and impossible to miss. You know, oh, God's doing something great in my life. Oh, what about this still small boy, voice business? And I think what I have what I think is a, a very fine message from not too long ago on Psalm 13 that references this particular story, and it talks about dealing with those times in our lives when it feels like God is absent, because we're going to go through those, as Elijah did here. There's lots of application from this story. But I really hope this morning that this story will be an encouragement to all of us. Here was a man who was strong in his faith. Someone God had done, used to do some pretty amazing things. And even he got to the point where he was, he was ready to throw in the towel. It's over. I've had enough, Lord. We can't know, but it's, you know, it's possible that Elijah was, was clinically depressed. You can't ever diagnose someone uh, through something like this when you don't know him and interview him and stuff. But it kind of sounds like depression, doesn't it? He, he was spent. So I would hope that when you are, are beating yourself up and, and questioning your faith because you've temporarily lost your joy or your, your zeal or your ability to care seems to have run off to Beersheba like Elijah did, I hope that you'll think about being honest 
about it. Now, it doesn't mean that you got to tell everyone all of your problems all the time, but you know, sometimes someone else will likely be encouraged to find out that someone they look up to, someone they respect, someone they call a friend, maybe even a mentor has gone through the same garbage that you are going through. If you don't put yourself out there, you're not going to encourage anyone else. We don't have to be perfect. We are not perfect. So pretending to be perfect is not going to do any real good to anyone. I mean, the chances are that most people who come here are going to be at least as screwed up as we are, right? So shouldn't we let them know that there's hope for them since there's hope for us? We are not all right, and, and, and we will not be all right this side of heaven. But that is not the end of the world because Jesus has our backs and God does not abandon us just because sometimes we get to the point where we have had enough. That's going to happen. And it's not an occasion to abandon your faith or to think God is is done with you or, or, or to think that you are irreparably damaged and way worse than the person you're sitting next to today because you're not. They're just as bad as you even if you're not sitting next to anybody, Dave. (laughs) We're not all right, and we will not be all right this side of heaven. But that's not the end of the world. Jesus died for us. We wrestle with sin. Sometimes we lose. Occasionally, we will win. But the point is to stay in the fight, to keep going. And God understands. And his story about Elijah, I think, tells us that God does understand that he is not unsympathetic. He is not holding us to a standard that we cannot be held to because we are failed people in a fallen world. I'm not making excuses for our sin. I'm just saying we are saved by grace, not by being perfect, and we need to live that way. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the truth of the gospel that it's not about us being perfect. We know we are playing catch-up in the holiness department, that we are always going to be trying to live up to what you have already given us in your Son, Jesus Christ. But we also know that we will fail. But we thank you for the fact that is reiterated so many times in your Word so many times in our lives that, yes, we are failures, but you work through failures, you love failures, you save failures. You sent Jesus to die for us failures.